Okay, good morning. It should be a good morning for Kalai Yisrael, Ami Tovos, Yeshuas, Vinachamos. want to thank our Emuna series sponsors, Dr. Avi and Bella Morgan, in memory of Rabbi Dr. Brian Galbin, in memory of Bella's mother, Dr. Ellen Chanzer. We are very grateful to the Morgans. Don't take their generosity and sponsorship and friendship for granted. This morning's shir is also sponsored by Neil and Brandy Pomper, Chazdei Hashem, for the full shleim of Nachman Meir Ben Yitzchak, should continue to be well and healthy, and by Jonathan Ratner, in honor of the birth of Emuna, Kayla Ratner. Mazel tov. we're very excited to welcome Emuna to our youth department. By Hannah and Abel Luf, in memory of her father, Yaakov Ben Moshe, Jack Wilder, and the Shama Shadav and Aliyah, thank you so much for your sponsorship. Also a reminder, at the conclusion of shir, as we do each and every week, we will complete all of Sefer Tehillim. If you stay for just a few moments, we divide all of Tehillim. We can complete all of Sefer Tehillim. And special for the Amunashir participants on your way out. If someone doesn't have the sound on and they're just watching, I don't know what they're thinking right now. But on your way out for your car, Israeli flag, American flag. We now have a Tzahal flag also. So that, first of all, I actually found it very convenient the other day. It's very easy to find your car in the parking lot. If you cover it with flags, especially the Tzahal flag, it's very easy to find your car in the parking lot. So there are all kinds of other advantages, all kinds of other advantages to doing it. They're available in the, uh, in the lobby. I want to share with you a couple of Muna emails, and then we will dive into a new, a new uh, piece that we're going to study today. There are copies of it here if you'd like to follow inside. I apologize it is only in the Hebrew, but we will learn it and translate it together. First email, Dear Rabbi Goldberg and the BRS congregation, I was raised a Reformed Jew. Although I went to Sunday school until I was 15 years old, it never stuck with me. Although I've always been a proud Jew and a strong supporter of Israel, I moved farther and farther away from any religious practice in adulthood. Indeed, for most of my adult life, I didn't belong to a synagogue and didn't attend services even on the high holidays. I thought very little, if ever, about God. In 2010, one of my business partners strong-armed me into studying privately with Rabbi Meir Salavechik, a good friend of mine who spoke here last year. Any opportunity to study with Rabbi Meir Salavechik... I agreed only because of my respect for my partner, so I went into the project with a great deal of skepticism. I didn't think of Rabbi Soloveitchik had much to teach me. Silly, arrogant, but lucky me. I studied with Rabbi Soloveitchik for three years, and it changed me profoundly. I found Hashem in a much deeper connection with my fellow Jews. I will forever be grateful to Rabbi Soloveitchik, my Wall Street partner, and most of all, Hashem, for putting me on this path. Isn't it amazing, someone... The author of this might be sitting in the room right now. But somebody who begins by saying, I had no relationship with God, wasn't sure I believed in him, didn't even go to shul on, on Rosh Hashanah, just in the next paragraph says, I will forever be grateful to Hashem for putting me on this path. It's so easy. It seems so easy. It's not easy at all. It's hard. But life is so much richer and better and bigger. And it's in living, vibrant color. You could go through life in black and white. Nobody, I'm, young people don't even know what I'm talking about. What's black and white? <laughs> You could go, I don't know what I'm talking about. I didn't exactly grow up on black and white either, but you can grow up watching something in black and white, or you could live in vibrant living color. And when Hashem is everywhere and He's involved and you can attribute and you can feel and you could be grateful, He's everywhere. Just life is so much more sometimes tolerable, sometimes you can navigate it better, and sometimes it's just more elevated and enriching and amazing. That's not the end. Hashem intervened further in my life last year. In February, my husband and I attended Rabbi Soloveitchik's talk at BRS. We belonged to a Reformed synagogue, but it was not the right place for us, as our spiritual needs had deepened. We discussed joining BRS, but didn't think that we could fit into the community because we're not observant. But I began to spend time on the BRS website and listen to many podcasts and YouTube videos. In August, I told my husband I want to join BRS, though we will never participate fully in the community, and I felt and feel extremely close spiritually to you all. I don't know how I could have weathered the horrors since October 7th, 
without you. BRS. The Shiram have offered, the classes have offered me great comfort. They have reinforced my faith in Hashem's plan for us and bolstered my chizik. As Israel is a light unto nations, so is the BRS community a light unto all Jews. Thank you all so, so much. It's an incredible email. The author is incredible. She might be in this room. And we're proud and honored to have her as a member of our community. And I'll reiterate, for those watching or those who are here, we don't really care how you get here. On Shabbos or during the week, we care that you're here. Nobody's looking, nobody's judging. Nobody's, nobody's giving you a score on how many mitzvahs you do. And uh, all, all we want is for you to be here and be part of our big family that is open, warm, and welcoming. And I love that somebody who describes having so little background and doubt about God and spending a majority into adult life of not having Him ends up with Hashem, Hashem, and Hashem. And Hashem this, and Hashem brought me, and Hashem, and I'm grateful for Hashem. So amazing. Thank you so much for sharing and giving me permission to share that email. Next email. This is an amazing email. They're all amazing emails. And then we have amazing Torah. And then I have an amazing thing to tell you. There's a lot going on. No, it's not amazing. My own Amuna story. Rabbi Goldberg, I hope you're doing well. My name is blank. My family made Aliyah a little over a year ago, August 2022, from such and such place, where my husband was the rabbi of such and such place. Making Aliyah with older children was challenging for all the regular reasons of adjusting to a new culture and language, new schools, a new community. But additionally, leaving our shul was difficult. And I often wondered throughout the year if we did the right thing. However, throughout the year, I've been listening to the weekly Amunashir. I found it gives me so much chizik. I often found that if I was having a hard day, I could put on the Amunashir and it would help me change my mindset and be able to view the day in a better light. And remember that Hashem has put me exactly where I'm supposed to be. I just want to say, I have the same experience. I don't put on the Amunashir. I just remember that I'm the one who has to give it. And then when I'm going through that difficult or challenging or frustrating, so last night I wrote my article for the week and at about midnight when I thought it was done and proud of myself and grateful so early, I discovered that it was gone. Then I spent the next hour trying to find it and watching every video on YouTube about how to recover the old files. So it's gone. Now, I don't know if I'm gonna rewrite it or it wasn't meant to see the light of day. It wasn't really so important or take the week off or write something different. I don't know yet. I will tell you, it was very, has that ever happened to you? You put a lot of work into something and it was creative energy and you were proud of it and then it's gone. It is among the, it's frustrating. It's aggravating, it's frustrating, it's infuriating. And then I put on the Amunashir. I didn't actually press play and listen to one, but I just remember that I give it and that I give it the next day, today. So then you're just like, okay, it is, it's meant. It's, that's why the life of the Amunah is amazing. Because you just let go and you're like, I don't know why, but, we, but like you start arguing with Hashem. But it was really good, it was written well and it's important. And then you're like, but you're the, you're the editor, you're the publisher. You, get, you publish and you've rejected my piece. And if you view it that way, not, I should have saved it and I can't believe it and technology is the worst and the IT host, why didn't he set it up that way and why did it happen to me and I can't believe this fluke. Instead of being frustrated and infuriated and aggravated and all you do in the process is lose your mental health, spiritual health, and physical health. Instead, you say, Hashem, you are the great editor, the great publisher, and you rejected the piece. So I guess I have to submit a different one. I have to try again or take the week off. But you rejected the piece. And it just, if you do that paradigm shift, it changes your whole experience. Hashem, you're the publisher, and you rejected the piece. You chose to reject it by having this file be lost. Okay, first of all, what lesson can I learn? How should I save my files differently? What am I meant to take from it? But once you extract the lesson you're meant to learn, if you let go and let God and you say, you're the publisher, you rejected it, it's time to go to sleep. You're no longer frustrated or aggravated or angry. 
I told you that before, but I have that experience when I give drushas. And sometimes afterwards I say, oh, I forgot, I should have ended that way, or I had this story, I had this quote, I had this. And it used to drive me crazy. I couldn't concentrate the whole musaf because I'd think in my mind, I should have landed the drusha that way. Maybe I should just give it again after davening. Don't worry, I don't really think about it. <laughs> and then you realize, no, you weren't meant, to, that wasn't meant to be shared. And then you could concentrate on musaf, and then you never think about it again. You let go because you just realize it wasn't meant. And it's just, it's such an amazing way to live life. So back to the email. That was my personal thing. I feel even better now. That, so back to the email. So the author writes that sometimes they put on, on the shear, our shear. It's not my shear. You write the emails. I spend half the shear. It's our shear together. I've been waiting to be able to send you a wonderful Amuna story, even one with not the positive outcome, which I know you always appreciate. But honestly, I found my, most of my stories are just everyday life. Being able to take a deep breath, relax, not feel overly anxious when the day-to-day -day of living in Israel feels overwhelming, and that was before the war. Especially as my husband and I had to figure out our new Parnassah, when are you starting BRS East? There was no one aha moment, but the constant chizik from the shir allowed me to just keep repeating, let go and let God. I want to share one event that happened last week in Israel, and I just keep replaying in my head. Sadly, on Shabbos Parshas Toldos, Binyamin Meir Erli, Hashem Yikom Damo, was killed in Gaza. Binyamin lived on our block in Ramat Beit Shemesh, and so it felt very close to home. Yecheved and the group that she's with from the OU paid a shiva call just yesterday to the family, and um, Binyamin's uncle and aunt used to live in our community, now live uh, in Parkland, but we feel connected to this terrible loss. Sunday, the day of the Leviah was the first real very rainy day and a cold day of the season and a downpour during the Leviah. The cold rainy weather matched the mood we were all feeling, but I kept feeling that while I was cold and wet and sad, usually in Israel, the first rain is seen as a simcha and kids go out and dance in the street. It's a sign of bracha. I couldn't quite wrap my head around the weather. To add to this, while in America, you've not start, started saying yet, v'sein talumatar levracha, we happen to be learning about that during Sitter Snippets, why we start a different date in Israel and outside of Israel. In Israel, they began on the 7th of Cheshvan. At that time, my husband told me there was discussion between some Rabbanim, if should we begin saying it because rain will be bad for the soldiers fighting in the south. So normally in Israel, they ask for rain at the beginning of the rainy season, the 7th of Cheshvan. In fact, the rainy season is really at the end of Sukkot. Why do they wait till the 7th of Cheshvan? The Gemara gives the reason because it takes 15 days for the person who lives farthest to get home, so as not to ask for rain and create flooding that would be dangerous. That would be a, a mud, whatever, would, would kill the travelers on their way home. We wait till the 7th of Cheshvan. So if the whole reason that we wait to start asking for rain is to protect people, so there was discussion in Israel this year, maybe delay asking for rain even longer because the rain could be dangerous for the soldiers. One writer of even suggested changing the text to say something along the lines of, give the fields the needed rain, but not the chayalim. I felt uncomfortable by this idea. We don't change the text of our davening. Hashem knows exactly where and how to bring the rain. Last week at the Shiva, I heard that when it did rain in a torrential downpour last Sunday, it caused the Hamas terror tunnel to flood, drowning some terrorists and causing others to come up and be captured and killed. I just kept thinking, wow, see Hashem not only brought the rain that Israel needs for its crops, but even in doing so, made it a bracha for the soldiers in Gaza. When we can only see that a situation will be good in one way, but bad in another, we don't need to fear because Hashem can make the situation so it is totally good, even when we can't understand how that will be. Thank you for the Amunashir. May we all, may all call Israel here, Besoros Tovos. Amen. But uh, I had seen that too because I mentioned it in the Siddur snippet that they contemplated pushing it off because the soldiers, and someone sent me a video actually of a soldier talking about that, how the rain was welcome. Not for the soldier who has to sleep outside under the trees, but it helped them in their fighting because it flooded the tunnels. Hashem, as always, knows exactly, exactly what He is doing.
One more or save it for next week? I'll save it for next week. Let's get into our learning together. Let's see this piece and we'll start off with the next email next week. Okay, this piece that we're looking at, Sichas Moreno Rasha Yeshiva Shlita. Who is Moreno Rasha Yeshiva Shlita? Is Rav Yisrael Meir Druk. This is a piece by Rav Druk. Those who enjoy the Parsha Shir know that for several years we've been quoting the Torah of Rav Druk in his Eish Tamid, his new Sefer, Lahavas Eish, his uh, other Sefer we quote sometimes in the Arab Shabbos Kolal, Midei Shabbos. He has wonderful Sfarim. He's a wonderful Tamachacham. Also has a tremendous power of looking at a person's name and understanding a lot about them. He's a very, very special uh, human being. And, um, and this is a Sicha. This is a talk that he gave having to do with having to deal with the Matzav, this reality, this crisis that is going on in our Holy Land. It was given on the... Uh, so it was given a couple weeks ago. The Gemara Tainus, he begins by quoting the Gemara in Mesechus Tainus Daf Yud Aleph. It says the following, In the time that the Jewish people are living with tragedy, living with crisis, in an urgent moment. So two angels come, and escort a person and put their hands on his head and say, What happens? The community. And the community can be defined in a very small way, in a broader way of a community, of a city, or broadly as a nation and as a people. And the Gemara in tells us that when when we are struggling and suffering in a crisis, what does Piresh mean? Someone separates Someone says, not my problem. I live in Borough Park or Boca. I'm comfortable, I'm safe, and I'm well. First of all, they're delusional. But aside from that, let's say they weren't just delusional. They say, I'm good to go. My family's comfortable and okay. And I don't feel connected. I don't want to watch or read or know about what's going on. Don't get your sadness on me. I'm good. Says the Gemara something incredible. Two angels come down and they escort the person who is dividing from the people. They put their hands on their head and they said, and they say, this individual who's separated from the community will not see in the nechama, will not see in the comfort of the community. This individual. A person, when a community is in crisis, a person shouldn't say, so sorry to hear that, feel really bad, add me to the WhatsApp group for Tehillim, and then go home and eat and drink and be merry. And say, I'm good. If the person does so, the Pasuk in Yeshaya says, person should never live a life with the philosophy of Eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Carpe diem. That's not the way that we live. A Jew feels connected to the reality of what's going on around them. A Jew feels empathy and sympathy and the pain. We find that Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't say, I'm God's loyal servant. I'm good to go. I have his promise and protection. Moshe Rabbeinu spends his whole life feeling connected. Feels the tsar of the tzibur. Why was Moshe recruited and selected? Why was he in fact appointed to be the savior of the Jewish people, our leader? Because Moshe felt that 
capacity, not only for fellow man, for other people, before Moshe was in charge of people, who was he in charge of? A bunch of sheep, as were all our great leaders. The Zion Roam, our seven shepherds, who we welcomed into the sukkah and the Oshpizen, the seven great shepherds of Am Yisrael, before they emerged, before they were elevated to be great leaders, first, they were great shepherds. Is that a coincidence? That is not a career path that Jewish parents take pride in today. <laughs> if you called home, I figured out what I want to be. Doctor? A lawyer? Nebuchadnezzar? No, none of the above. What is it? What do you want to be? A shepherd. <laughs> shepherd. I said that once in a shir, and someone told me afterwards that their child actually knew what they wanted to be, but took, took some time before doing it because they always wanted to first, they spent several months in Israel first being a shepherd. But why were they all shepherds? Why were they shepherds? There's a lot of answers to that. One of them, it's actually connected to our parsha, by Yavasa Yaakov Livado. When did Yaakov have an enormous growth spurt? When he was Livado. When he disconnected from technology and noise and social media and even the 12 children who needed bath time and bedtime and to learn Mishnah with them and homework with them. That's as you know why Yaakov invented Marav, so he could get out of bath time and bedtime and the 12 children that he had. But Yaakov got a few minutes of quiet and solace. He was Livado and Vayivaser. And when we are Livado, we can wrestle with ourselves. There's a lot more to say about it for another time. For another time. But what we call Hisbodidus. Hisbodidus is when we have a meaningful, real, authentic, genuine conversation with Hashem. And when does that happen? It doesn't happen when we're scrolling and typing and following and watching and listening. When does it happen? When we have a little bit of alone. Just close our eyes and we breathe and we reconnect. And we reconnect. We talked about this on Sunday night with Rav Moshe Gersh. Those who didn't hear it, you could listen online. The amazing author of It's All the Same to Me, the Baal Shem Tov's idea of Hishtavos. If you don't know whether that's a little book worth reading, it may be the only, it is the only book on the planet that has an endorsement from Rav Asher Weiss and Deepak Chopra. <laughs> Both think it's worth your time to read. It's called It's All the Same to Me, and it has a new book called The Three Conditions, and we talked about this, the role of breathing and of mindfulness in, being, in practicing equanimity and feeling and finding Hashem. So his bodhidus, how can you just be in a, slow the breathing, slow the pulse, feel connected to ourselves, to our core, to our essence, to our creator, and be in a conversation with him. That's what it's about. You know who does that? Shepherds. You know why? Because the shepherd didn't have an iPhone or an iPad. The shepherd wasn't catching up or binge watching Netflix. The, catch, the, the shepherd wasn't checking the stock market or what happened last night in the game. The shepherd, when the little sheepalach were eating and grazing from the field, or the flock was fast asleep, you know what the shepherd did? He's just having a conversation with Hashem. It's just him and Hashem. Listening to the sounds that all of us don't even hear because we have AirPods in. Just listening to the rustle of the leaves and the grass and looking around and seeing the hills and the valleys and the sky and the sun. And the shepherd finds Hashem in such profound ways that we are so blind to because we've created all these artificial obstacles and barriers that we can't find or feel Hashem. In fact, he, he shared in this talk that before we started on Sunday night, he was here a few minutes earlier and he met somebody who he obviously knows from before and that person was describing they're feeling very anxious so they sat together with their eyes closed, did some breathing and also did some listening. 
And if you're listening, you can hear all kinds of things that we don't even pay attention to. You don't know, a door closing, squeaking, an air conditioning kicking in. You're just, you're just creating a sense of mindfulness and presence that brings with it a calm that allows for discovery and growth. Listen to, it's, it's worth listening, it's more worth even reading. So the shepherd in the field, that's all they do all day, is they're just fully present with themselves and fully present with the world around them and discovering and finding Hashem, and they are involved in conversation. But that's not why Moshe was chosen. All the Zion, Zoron, the seven shepherds, all practiced shepherding before they then got their lives very noisy and busy and rattled with their rabbanus, with their position leading Am Yisrael. First, they had to be a shepherd. We should introduce that to smicha. You got to learn Yordea, you got to take smicha, and before you go out to be a rabbi, you got to spend some time being a shepherd. We should introduce, are you comfortable in your own skin? Can you be alone? Do you find Hashem? How are you in nature? You have to, the Zion Rome, the Zion Rome. You got to be comfortable out in, in nature, in nature. I went last night to buy a winter coat, not because it's freezing here, it is freezing here. But I'm going to Israel next week and I'm going to have to go to New York today for a little bit. So I was in, uh, somebody sent me to a store, I didn't even know existed, that has like outdoor gear, R-E-I, is that what it's called? Is that my, is it, is it you're supposed to pronounce it? Like Ray, Re, that has a name? I'm not trying to like, I, I never heard of it before. Anyway, I went there. So I'm looking at the coats and there's a guy schmoozing and looking at the same coat. I said, what do you think? Is this a good coat? He's like, here's how it works. When you're out and camping and in nature and the hiking and it can get snagged. So I like to wear on top of it. Another is, what are you getting it for? What are your activities? Are you the hiking, the uh, whatever? I'm like, going to New York? <laughs> Manhattan? I have to get through Manhattan? Can I get through? Will it work? Anyway, so nature, that's as far as a Jew goes with nature, is when you have to walk to Shul and Shabbos because you have no choice. It's the closest we come. So no, we should come a lot closer. And we live in a place, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Even on this frigid, cold day, go for a walk around the lake. Go for a walk. You talk about the nature, because of the weather, make sure no iguana hits you on the head when it falls out of the tree. But I, I don't do it every day. I don't do it every week. I go through spurts where I tried in the middle of the day, just go for a walk around the lake, return calls, or even better, leave the phone and just talk to yourself. We, we have a beautiful lake. And there are lizards and iguanas and ducks, and there are fish and turtles. And there's all kinds, it's amazing. It's amazing. And there are leaves and there are trees and there are bushes and fauna, and it's amazing. When's the last time you left your phone at home and just went for that walk? and just took that in and found him and were in a conversation with him. And the more frazzled you are, the more frustrated you are, the more anxious you feel, the less you want to do that. Like, I can't do that now. I don't have a head for that now. I don't want to go. That's, the, that's when you need it the most. That's when you need it the most. That's when you, have, when you have no time and so much to do and you're passing out from it and you're super busy. That's when take five minutes and go for that walk and find and feel Hashem and come back. You will be super productive, super efficient, super calm. Be a shepherd to the iguanas and the lizards and the ducks. Shepherd them for a little bit. Shepherd them for a little bit. But that's not why Moshe was chosen. Why was Moshe chosen? Moshe was chosen because the Medrash tells a story. The altar of Kelm brings it down when he talks about, he has a long essay, Anosim Olam Chavero, tells the story of one of the flock of the sheep. One day a little sheep Allah was, you know, the, even among the sheep, they fall behind. There was the sheep that couldn't keep up was a little slower, struggled in school, struggled socially with friends, struggled in executive function and couldn't get dressed and get it going in the morning. So this sheep, this Nebuch, this little sheep, 
You know, before there were all kinds of programs and support and we had the knowledge and learned how to, to support such and next Monday night, you see how I do these plugs, weave them in? Monday night, we're doing a three-part mental hygiene series, mental health. We have literally world experts, incredible people coming. It's really, really special. And the woman that's starting Monday night is an expert, wrote a book on DBT and she's uh, incredible. And, and for ourselves and for our children and for these sheep, in particular, these sheep, not the sheep in the flock who's the first one, who's running in the front, who nobody can keep up with, who excels in everything. Not that sheep, the superstar sheep, who gets the best grades and stars on the team and is picked first and socially fits in, but the sheep in the back, the sheep that can't keep up, the sheep that can't get it going, the sheep that has a failure to launch, that sheep. Maybe you feel like that sheep. Maybe you're a parent to such a little sheep. Come Monday night, you'll see it, you'll see it advertised. Really amazing. So Moshe, Moshe was not the great Moshe, the Anamikol Adam, the brilliant, erudite, superstar, incredible, spiritually superior Moshe. He didn't neglect that sheep. He found that sheep and he put the sheep, the Medrash says, on his shoulders. And the med that little sheep was, was tired and thirsty, was a little dehydrated. And Moshe carefully, almost like with a dropper, fed the sheep, hydrated the sheep, nourished the sheep carried the sheep on his shoulders until he could get it back with the flock, until he fit back in, until he got it going. And Hashem said, forget how humble you are, forget how smart you are, forget how righteous you are. There's other smart and righteous and humble people, but you're no se ba'olim chavero. You feel the pain, you see that sheep that doesn't fit in, you care, he's or she's not invisible or inconsequential to you, you're my leader, you're the one. You are the model. You are Rabbeinu forever. It's a beautiful altar of Kelman. It's a long essay worth reading. So here Rav Druk is referring to it. It says that Moshe, Moshe, we can learn from Moshe. He started with the sheep and later with all the people. Moshe saw and he cared and he supported and he felt the pain. When the Jewish people, and here's the point where Rav Druk is getting to. When the Jewish people are fighting Amalek, We've been fighting Amalek since we began. Since our very inception, we've been fighting Amalek and we're still fighting Amalek. And you see, Amalek is pernicious and if you allow them to remain, they metastasize. And throughout our history, the, the public national pressure that's always told us to back off is what has allowed the Amaleks to live, to continue to regroup and to come back and we've paid the highest price each time. We're still fighting Amalek. But in that original fight with Amalek, so Yehoshua was the general who led the people in battle. And what did Moshe do at that time? He held up his hands. And the Mishnah says, and there's a song to these words by the London School of Jewish Music that maybe you never heard of. But there's a song to these words. He held up his hands. And when Moshe's hands were up, that's not the song, but when Moshe's hands were up, so then they won. And when Moshe's hands were down, they lost. And wonders the Mishnah, do hands pointing to the heavens win a war? And Chazal, our rabbis, tell us, yeah, you know why? When Moshe pointed up, everybody looked up and they remembered who's really in charge, who's really in control, the Hashem. So as we spoke about in the parasha yesterday, we have to take our initiative. First Yaakov divided his camp and he armed them and he got them ready. And then he turned to Hashem and he davened. We do both parts. We have an army and we have to get them ready, and we have to support them and take care of them, and then we daven for them and daven for ourselves. We have to do both parts, hishtadlas and bitacham and amuna. So Moshe's hands were props. When he lifted them, the people remembered, oh yeah, he's in charge. 
and we davened him, and when Moshe's hands got heavy and they fell, and we forgot, and we looked down and we thought, it's our tanks and our artillery, and it's our paratroopers, and it's our navy, it's us, then we lost the war. Because when we think it's all us, then we're in trouble. And when we remember that we're partners, but really it's all him, then we do well. So what happened? If you've ever tried to hold up your arms, you know, body weight is an incredible source of exercise. Everyone thinks I have to belong to the gym and I have to buy these fancy weights. And then just do repetitions with your own body weight and see how, hold your hands up and see how long you can hold them up. You don't have to do it right now. They get very heavy. Moshe Rabbeinu's arms get incredibly heavy. So what happened? Videi Moshe Kvedim, Tzapasak and Shmos. Moshe's hands got heavy, so they took a stone and they put it underneath it and he sat on it. Moshe sat on a rock instead of standing, holding up his arms. The first thing when it got heavy was, here's a chair. Only they didn't give him a chair. It wasn't a comfortable chair. It wasn't an uncomfortable chair. It wasn't a chair. What did they give him? A rock. A rock? Nobody had a pillow. Nobody had a chair. Nobody had a recliner. Nobody had something comfortable that Moshe could sit on. If the Jewish people are struggling and suffering, if they're at war and battling, if they're sleeping outside in the woods, if they haven't seen their family, if they haven't had a good meal, then I'm not sitting on no comfortable recliner or couch or chair. And the Gemara says, similarly, any of us, any of us, Rav Abishur hasn't slept with a pillow since October 7th this war broke out. The Chavetz Chaim didn't sleep on a mattress during World War I. I wrote last week's article, I mentioned someone in our community mentioned in passing, an extraordinary, amazing person, that he hasn't had chocolate since October 7th. Every time he has a little bit of an uh, impulse for chocolate, he stops himself and says, you know, I could do without chocolate if they can do without all they're doing without. I, not eating chocolate's going to defeat Hamas? Not eating chocolate, not sleeping on the pillow is going to beat terrorists? Is going to bring hostages home? The answer is yes, the merit of Mitzar Atzmo Imat Sibur. So what are we denying or depriving ourselves? Just a little bit. What luxury are we not indulging in right now? Because while brothers and sisters can't have necessities, how could we enjoy luxuries? And we should be thinking about that as we're planning Yeshiva week, thinking about that as we're looking at Hanukkah. We still have to keep Hanukkah. We have to observe Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a yantif. We have to experience Hanukkah. I'm not saying we don't have to have Hanukkah. I'm not saying when our children are off, we shouldn't find a meaningful way to spend time with them during Yeshiva week. I'm not saying that Everything that we're doing right now, our everyday lives, we need to live, make ourselves suffer. But what luxury are we temporarily suspending while our brothers and sisters don't have some basic necessities? Because if we want to be like Moshe Rabbeinu, and who is Moshe Rabbeinu imitating? Hashem. I shared this recently. When Hashem speaks to Moshe, I think it was last week I told you, He doesn't do it from beautiful landscape. He does it from a thorn bush among the thistles. Because Hashem himself says, Imo anochi If you're in pain, I'm in pain. I can't, if you're sleeping on the ground, I'll sleep without a pillow. So you could be back in a bed, I could live with one, let you sleep with two pillows, one pillow, one less pillow. Until you're in a bed, I'm without one of my pillows. Why, that's going to stop Hamas? Yeah. Because when a Jew cares about another Jew and connects with another Jew and feels the tsar of another Jew, call him a tsar atzmer matzibor, if we can feel the pain of the tzibor, then we will merit to see the comfort and consolation of the tzibor. So far he didn't say anything, Rav Druk. So far all he did was quote the Gemara in Tainus. Now he starts to say something. We are finding ourselves 
with half a million soldiers who are betzar, who are in danger. And you'll say, we're not in danger right now. There's a temporary ceasefire. Except that yesterday, three soldiers were shot and injured because that's how Hamas, you know what the Hamas definition of a ceasefire is? You cease and we keep firing. That's the Hamas definition of a ceasefire. That's what it's always been. That's what it continues to be. That's what it was. I'm sure you saw the headlines, right? The outrage of the world, how Hamas breached the ceasefire and shot three soldiers. I'm sure you saw it. You read all about it, right? Of course not. Because the world doesn't ask Hamas to cease. They're allowed to keep firing. It's only Israel that has to cease. So even in a ceasefire, our soldiers are in great danger. Half a million soldiers on the front. People living in all kinds of situations and conditions. More families still sitting shiva injured in the hospital. Families who are displaced and not yet home. Yecheva described when she got to the hotel visit displaced soldiers when she first got there on Monday, she said the lobby is packed and filled with people and they look just, they're, they're, they're like shells of themselves. This is going on seven weeks of sitting in a lot. It's not a Pesach program that you have four outfits to be in the lobby for the shidduch of your kid and the next uh, barbecue and uh, midnight uh, tea room. This is seven weeks of taking your whole family without your clothing, without your, without your belongings, without your space, cramming into a, a room and having to hang out in a lab. Enough. Enough. That's tsar. That's tsar. Says Rav Druk, we're not even talking about the families who are grieving for those who were murdered or those who were injured. And we're not even talking about the families of those who are held hostage or the hostages themselves. You read a report yesterday? The parent of one of the children who was released said the children were forced to watch videos from October 7th over and over. The videos that are not even being released for us to see, that were only shown to some of the media, some of Knesset, some Congress. Children, that's these barbarians, these animals, made children watch videos. The pride they took of October 7th. Monsters. Shalem Tzorim B'Tzar Norai in a Astonishing, profound pain. Amru, as the Gemara says in Baba Basra, Hashevi Yukasha Mikulam. This isn't a new phenomenon. This isn't the first time the Jews have been taken hostage. And the Gemara Baba Basra tells us, Hashevi Yukasha Mikulam, being held hostage is worse than everything. You remember the father was interviewed, it turns out his child was alive, but when he was told his child was murdered after a few days and it was unclear, and he said, That's a relief. They said, That's a relief? And he said, Yes, the thought of his being held hostage tortured, mistreated. Do you see the images of the children and adults coming out? You notice something about them? What are they wearing? Have you asked yourself, why are these adults and children who are coming out 50-some days later, coming out at night, why are they wearing pajamas? And there's a very simple answer. You know why? Because seven weeks ago, that's what they were wearing when they were first taken hostage. They haven't been allowed to change or shower in seven weeks. They're wearing the same pajamas. Every minute feels like an eternity. Says Rav Druk, I'm not even talking about the grieving families. I'm not even talking about the families who someone's being held hostage or the hostages themselves. I'm talking Am Yisrael. We're in a war. And as we wrote about last week, the Medrash tells us, the Pasuk says, Elif lamate, elif lamate, when we fought with Midian, a thousand per tribe, a thousand per tribe. For every thousand who went to fight, a thousand adopted and davened on their behalf. The war is being fought on the front. 
in Gaza and in Lebanon and in Yehuda v'Shomron and against Iran and is being fought over 70 times on army bases, American army bases in the Middle East. We should think about the U.S. troops who've been fired upon now 70 times in the last month. It'd be nice to see them have some support. He said, but the real war is fought. Where is the victory attained? In the Bate Knesset, Bate Midrashos. Kvisha Amru Chazal, as our rabbi said in Brachos Nandalad, Haroa Evan Sheyashavala Moshe, Bezman Shenuchim Yashuim Amalik Mavarich, Baruch Shasa Neslav Osena Bamakamazeh. If you were to see the rock, the stone that Moshe sat on while he lifted his arms and davened during that war with Amalek, you would recite a bracha. What bracha is said upon seeing that stone? Baruch Shasa Nes. Blessed is you, Hashem, who made a miracle for our forefathers in this place. Now, do you think we, we don't make that bracha anymore? We still make that bracha. We, one would make that bracha if you knew exactly where Kriyas Yamsuf happened, the place of the Yarden we crossed over when we entered Israel, where the Yarden split. Gemara gives examples where you make that bracha. I saw a video of someone making that bracha. One of the residents of Shlomit, of Chalutza, who the head of Chalutza, our dear friend Yedid Yaharush, will be here for Shabbos in a couple weeks, but one of the residents named Oz, who was part of the battle and went out to fight on October 7th. Not the army, because the real October 7th, Klai Yisrael was saved by the civilians, the civilian security forces. He took his gun, he put his family in the safe room, he went out to fight. He lost four, four of the 70 families of Shlomit, without a husband and a father who fell in that battle. But Oz survived, but he was shot in the leg. And when he recovered and got out of the hospital, he went back to that same spot. I have a video of him in the front of the, of the house, fighting terrorists who'd infiltrated. And he made this bracha, b'shem amachos, with Hashem's name. Baracha Hashem, Hashem, who made a miracle in this place. If it's our forefathers, appears in the back of the Gemara. Of Shmuel Idels. Interesting footnote. Idels was not his name. The Maharsha took on his wife's maiden name because the Maharsha was a big feminist? No. No. He had certain reason. He had to take on his wife's name. I think it had to do with the dowry and his father-in-law's support and whatever the case may be historically. Rav Shmuel Idels, he took on his wife's... You know who else took on his wife's maiden name? My grandfather-in-law. Zaidi. Took on his wife's maiden name. Certain circumstances. Immigration having to come in. It was common. Yeah, it was common. Oh. They kept changing the name. Oh. So the Marsha was among them, Rav Shmuel Aydel. In the back of that Gemara, he wonders a very good question, and we'll end with this. He said, Why did Moshe, why do we make a bracha on that rock? It's a rock. Where was the war won against Amalek? On the Shetach, on the battlefield. So if you go to the battlefield where we defeated Amalek, I don't even know if that's accurate to say. I wish we could say we defeated Amalek. We didn't. We just pushed back Amalek. We withstood the attack of Amalek. We defended ourselves against Amalek. But we can't say we defeated Amalek. Make the brach at the battlefield. You go to the battlefield and you see the miracle where we won against Amalek. But the rock that Moshe sat while he davened, that's where you make the bracha. You make the blessing in the place of the miracle. The, the miracle was in the battlefield. 
It's true, the miracle was the battlefield. The miracle is happening on the border of Gaza, in Gaza. The miracles are happening we know nothing about because those stories are not being shared with us. The miracle, you saw the story of the bullet that didn't get through the Tehillim. The soldier who had a Tehillim and the bullet was caught in the Tehillim. Someone said to me, even a bullet can't get through Kuf Yutes. <laughs> even the book, Kuf Yutes, the longest of the Tehillim, even the bullet can't get through Kuf Yutes. There are miracles happening. So the miracle happens on the battlefield. Absolutely, says the Marsha. However, where was the real battlefield? It was the top of that mountain where Moshe raised his hands. Yes, you make the bracha where O's survive the infiltration of the terrorists outside Shlomit. Yes, one makes the bracha there. But you know where else you make the bracha? In the base Medrash and in the base Knesses, next to the stone that Moshe sat on. Because where is the war really ultimately won? We take our initiative, we do our ishtadlis, but what is actually the key to success and triumph? Where is the victory attained? In the place of tefillah, in the place that we daven. And that's why every one of us are soldiers and we'll pick up with this. Next week we're in Israel, so we're off. But in two weeks when we come back, Hanukkah, we will pick up with this piece where Rav Druk will therefore conclude, you think you're not a soldier? You think all you're doing is giving up on some chocolate? You're a reservist and you've been called up because where will we make a bracha, please God, when this is over, that a miracle happened? In the place where Tehillim was finished. You stay after Shir and you introduce something new, not just have a coffee and catch up and compare Mahjan results, but now, I'm not suggesting that's all people talk, uh, save the email, I wasn't insulting anybody. But if you stay afterwards and you say Tehillim, then this is Baruch Shasanes. This is where the miracle will be. We have a responsibility. We have an obligation. Please stay and say Tehillim. We pick up with Living with Amunah, Mir Hashem, in two weeks. Should be a good day for Am Yisrael.